You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. So, welcome to this episode of HEDEX, Carl. It's great to be back on the air again. Sure is. A terrific interview today as well that we can, we can discuss. How have you been? Yeah, I've been I've been very good. It's been um, a busy time after the Easter break now for a few weeks, getting back up to speed with the issues the sector's facing. And um, we had some good reactions to our interview with Bridget Hayward from a couple of weeks ago. But who have you got lined up for us? You, you, you've actually brought a guest to us this week, Carl. Who's that and what's their story? Yes, I've got a, a somewhat of an old friend, but also one of Australia's most recognised or best recognised and um, most awarded data scientist, Matthew Cooperholtz from PwC, that we have a good chat with in a minute. Now, I've known Matt uh, personally for 35 years, so I've, I've tracked his career and I've also seen some of the amazing achievements that he's been involved in. Um, and in terms of being a, an analytical thinker, there's, there's few that are better. His views on the industry being associated with the university, uh, going to several universities and also being a stakeholder slash parent and influencer and employer uh, was fascinating. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the great things that I enjoy most about what we're doing together on, on this podcast series, Carl, is that um, we've had a lot of leaders of our universities as vice chancellors on the show, and we've been delighted to have those. We've had a couple of students already, and I'm sure we'll have more. But to get a 360-degree all-round view of what's going on in this sector as it goes through such exciting change from people that, that are employers, work, work in an adjunct capacity with our universities, but are themselves parents and employers of, of students and graduates and, and are you know, part of the influencer group, part of the many influencer groups, I think it's really valuable for us all to get an understanding of how the sector's changing. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Matt. And Matt comes at a good time. So he comes, he can't, he's come out of uh, finishing school, being a school leaver in the 80s, uh, going to Melbourne University, uh, being part of the heavily weighted influence around Sandstone at that time, being you know, Melbourne's best university for um, for what he needed. But being a, a guy who's been hardwired as a technologist through that process, he's been at the cutting edge of early adoption in terms of changing behaviour, um, places to go, uh, dropping things that aren't relevant anymore. And so he's always, he always seems to be one step ahead. Uh, and now, so he, because he does have his finger in every sort of pie here, that he's got experience as a student himself. He's got two kids, uh, one about to become a, a student in higher education. Uh, he's an employer of choice at PwC, employing hundreds of people and making decisions and also building associations uh, in terms of uh, driving innovation with universities. He's a terrific guest. Well, it sounds like he's a perfect illustration of the the big challenge that universities have faced over the 35 years or however long it is that you've known Matt in that things were much simpler 35 years ago. Universities were largely about being there, opening their doors and trying to get a message out to largely a student population about where people might want to go. It's um, 
it's a very much more complex and competitive and nuanced and subtle and diverse field of communications that the modern university is facing, particularly at a time of change like this. Maybe we should get a, get a listen to what you and Matt had to say and come back and see what we think about what the challenges are to universities right now. I agree. Here's the interview. So today I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Cooperholtz, who's PwC's Chief Data Scientist and a partner in their consulting business. Matt's also an adjunct professor at the School of Information Systems and Business Analytics at Deakin. He's been uh, the recipient of the Top Analytics Leader Award by the industry body, and most recently, one of the Global Top 100 Data Innovators awarded by Carinium. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Carl. So Matt, you're no stranger to higher education, both academically, personally, and also from a consulting perspective. Why don't we start by getting your views on anything you've noticed generally or specifically in terms of a shift in higher education generally? I guess most recently, Carl, there was obviously the shakeup, not just for higher education, but for all of us when we had to stay at home. And higher education I, I do a lot of work advising Deakin University um, with regard to their Masters of uh, Business Analytics, which is a, a postgraduate course um, in, in my area of speciality, data science. And I've taught at that course for years and it's, it's always been attended partly in person and partly remotely, but it was interesting to consider all courses going remote it was very interesting to consider the the proposition that Australian universities, and in particular, you know, I live in Victoria, and I believe education, tertiary education, is the number one export for Victoria in terms of dollars. And I don't think that's for overseas students to tune in from their their living rooms and studies at home. It's the entire proposition of coming to live um, in in a foreign city, an exciting city like Melbourne, and to physically attend university. So there's obviously an enormous shakeup with the COVID imposed move to remote learning only. Um, but outside of that immediate shock to the system, I guess I've seen a, a pretty interesting series of disruptions to the sector, um, starting with when I went to university some um, 30 years or so ago, there were a handful of universities and then there were a bunch of the the TAFEs and, and other sort of tertiary institutions. You know, this is blended a lot more now that you've got so much more choice. And we're talking physically, um, you know, on campus, a, a much greater choice now. Um, and, you know, well-respected institutions that are not part of the, the group of eight. Um, you've almost got some startups or disruptors in there with, with a very unique brand proposition. But what I really think is the big disruption is what's been afforded um, by the internet in terms of online courses and further education and self-service or remotely attending and in some cases for free some of the best blue ribbon universities around the world on a on a course basis um, for society as a whole i think this is absolutely fantastic um, for traditional universities and the market they were trying to capture, I think it's a, an enormous disruptor and a threat that they have to um, reposition themselves and what it is they're offering that encourages a student not just to go and, and grab something over the internet from um, perhaps one of the best universities in Ivy League in America, for example. And do you feel that this shift is a temporary response or reaction to COVID? Or do you think we're now looking at a totally new existence and really just the emergence of that? Oh, look, Carl, I, th I think things are 
are changing permanently in terms of how we learn um, and, and what skills are most valued to learn. Um, I think that it is getting harder to move out of academia if you have stayed there for some time beyond your undergraduate into, into postgraduate and, and beyond. Um, so that people are perhaps spending less time formally in the system and more time trying to get out into the workplace. Um, I noted um, I noted with some excitement today the announcement of the new CEO of Australia Post. Um, and when reading through his qualifications, he actually never went to university. He came up through um, learning on the job about supply chains and as such now has Australia's um, highest paying public servant position um, in terms of the CEO of Post without the need for university education. Mm. Um, we should talk later about some of the advice I give people who come to me asking how best to improve their skills in, in practical hands-on data science. Mm. And um, it's usually not to go and take further education, um, but rather to use any number of means to get your hands on real data and start applying your skills to the real world problems. Because as a, employers want people that are practically able to do the work, um, moving away from the sort of theoretic capabilities that are enabled by tertiary education. You're, you're touching on some pretty good points. Now, I should probably let the, the our listeners know that you and I have known each other for around 30 years, 35 years, perhaps, a very long time. And so when you talk about uh, people coming to you for advice, you know, you've been a data scientist you, since I've known you when you were 14 years old. So, you know, and you've gone through formal education, you've been recognized as Australia's leading data scientist. So I think your advice is going to be well received and certainly listened to. Um, moving forward in, into that, you know, some questions around, um, you know, being a celebrated lifelong learner that you are and, you know, uh, where you credit education appropriately. If you were to have a crystal ball and look, look forward into the next five to 10 years and do think from a commercial lens, as you just mentioned, what what do you think people will be doing? You know, young young people coming into coming out of school into looking for immediately the quickest path, I suspect, to a, a strong vocation like um, you know consulting, maybe or maybe it's a, a leadership role in in one of Australia's leading companies, whatever it might be, or a tech a tech role. Given that basically every company is a tech company, what is it that you think they'll be doing? And and do you think they'll be forever searching shortcuts like the rest of us are on, in uh, technology? It's interesting, Carl, because I've been watching um, some videos on assisting people with coding at the moment, and it's come up again and again as people have given these lessons, very experienced coders, uh, and they all independently made the point that even as experienced coders, they will go to Google um, five, ten times an hour to quickly find how you structure that code. Mm -hmm. We're not expected to learn a syntax which is tested in an exam and then sits with us for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. There's gonna be a whole bunch of new programming languages by then. Mm -hmm. you, you learn some concepts, um, usually on the tools, and you then realize that you have at your disposal um, an incredible resource, whether we're talking about forums um, or just searchable repositories of knowledge, and our way of working in these technical skills is, is much more about looking up what you need at that point in time. Mm. Um, or, you know, taking libraries that other people have written and shared in an open source community. Mm. So when you, when you think about 
in the technology space, the move towards open source and open sharing, um, it's much more about using the building blocks that other people have prepared rather than creating from scratch. And given you're not creating from scratch, you kind of take other people's expert knowledge on how to build a library that integrates with that particular sensor or that particular messaging robot mm. um, and, and take it as given. I think we learn more and more about how to work with other people's completed components than to be a master of all the skills required ourselves. And so let's change the uh, change the tone a little bit to culture. Given that you're you have a role at Deakin University, and I'm sure you've had other interactions and intersections with higher education whilst being at PwC and in other parts of your career. How do you feel the culture of our universities is positioned to be able to build relationships, to bring in this new way of thinking, be it more practical, be it more on the fly, uh, reference to open source materials? Do you think that we have enough uh, of an interface at the moment between commercial reality and higher education? And if, if not, how do we go about getting that? I think uh, some of the units that we teach at Deakin, for instance, um, capstone or keystone units that present the students with um, a data set and a problem from the real world, have them work together and then present back to real world stakeholders. Now, this um, is often for not-for-profits. It's kind of like a, a type of charity in and of itself. But, you know, make no mistake, these are real problems that need solving and brain power. Mm. Um, I think culturally, the idea of moving our students much more towards uh, the practical skill sets they're going to need when they leave the education system and enter the workplace um, is a great idea. I know they find those subjects very rewarding. Mm. Um, I know when you head to your first couple of interviews, um, it's very hard to be able to talk practically about relevant experience in your job to prove that you can do something, You know, especially if someone's interviewing you um, looking for actual stories, behavioural-based interviewing, for example. Um, and, and then if you have done courses that have required you to solve real-world problems um, or you've taken it on your own bat and looked at some of the competitions that are out there, and, you know, we talk about different ways of learning, um, for data science and technology and coding in general, um, competing in forums that are available um, online where you can then look at the best answers and learn from that, I think is an incredible shortcut to, um, you know, a semester-long course around the same topic. Mm. And the, the traditional universities have for many years relied on proven strategies and an existing culture. So just to hone in on that question that it seems like Deacon, from your experience there, have uh, been prepared to be curious and explore different ways of doing things and broken new relationships with the commercial world to be able to ensure that there is um, validity to some of those solutions that are being um, developed or proposed from inside the university itself. Is that right? Yeah, well, Carl, you're you're a brand man, and and you know very much. I think um, you could tell me better than I know how Deakin attempts to position itself um, relevant to perhaps its more seasoned traditional competitors, whose brands more vest on their multi-hundred-year history. Mm. Yeah, um, no, yeah, it's, it's a good point. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think we're we're at a point now where, and we've spoken about this on some of the other podcasts, but the other episodes, I should say, there's a bit of a tipping point here where if you're looking at 
the weighting of the drivers in terms of recruitment of students, for instance, that for a long time, and I know you were certainly in the cohort, I think you went to Melbourne Uni, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I went to Melbourne Uni, but I went to Melbourne Uni because uh, I, I needed to study, or I didn't need to, I wanted to study actuarial science. Mm. And in fact, Melbourne Uni, when I went there in 1991, it was only the second university in that year offering actuarial studies for the first time. Before mm. that, everyone had to go to Canberra or study remotely. Mm. Um, so my choice, and, and you know, the choice was not governed by the prestige of Melbourne University. If anything, no. it would have been a lifestyle choice based on wanting to study um, in a city and, and mm. move in a city. Um, but I really had no choice um, because that's where my course was. But you'll remember coming out of school, and I know you went to uh, one of the private schools in Melbourne, as did I, and we went to a series of parties. And at those parties, that was it was very awkward in my perspective, but those parties, people were running around the place saying, I got into X at Y. And usually those mm. people were saying, I got into um, uh, commerce at Melbourne, or I got into medicine at Melbourne or Monash. You know, there was this sort of pr this uh, social construct around where they were accepted into that gave them a, a heightened sense of self and identity for that particular point in time. What I suspect and I hypothesize is happening now is because of COVID and also pre that because of the emergence of, of technology in itself, you know, with the Googles and the Amazons of the world that I don't think we're going to see the same weighting to those drivers towards the big sandstone universities. I think we're going to start seeing a different balance where the deacons and the more contemporary progressive universities start becoming, you know, the, the boastable entity as opposed to I got into something that my dad and my grandfather or my mother and my grandmother got into. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. Absolutely, Carl. And, and in fact, it's, it's interesting having been to that through that private school system and to that sandstone university and now with a son about to finish at the same private school mm. um, I actually question to what extent that was genuinely money well spent mm. um, and in fact if it wouldn't have been better to put it aside in, in some trust for him later in life and instead to enter the, the public system so I'm I'm really questioning what is the value of prestige mm. um, when there are so many alternatives now for um, a high quality education, especially for a curious learner. Mm. Um, you know, I had, I did a lot of postgraduate work as well um, in the actuarial um, area. And as I was trying to become that final step, the fellow of the Institute of the Actuaries of Australia, um, I was studying volumes of superannuation legislation. Um, it bored me to absolute tears. In fact, to the extent that it was the first thing that I never finished in my life. Mm. Um, why did I not finish it? Well, because at the same time, the internet, um, internet 1.0 <laughs> was um, sort of catching this exponential wave and becoming the, the latest and the greatest thing. And I found that I was excited to go home and learn how to program um, mm. web development and web languages. And it was when I realized that when you're genuinely excited and curious about a topic, um, you're not really learning. Mm. you know you, you're enjoying yourself and mm. you're learning you're learning on the side as opposed to trying to force yourself to learn something dry like superannuation legislation um and i know I, you know i know the direction your career has taken in terms of formal versus informal education and how you've bubbled to be the brand expert you are not through tertiary courses and great expense but rather for your own curiosity mm. um and talent in that sphere yeah i think it's safe to say neither of us are, are with the conventional typical students at at school and 
when I think about the traditional conventional students at school and the career paths they took, I, you know, there's probably a strong argument that there's a variety of, um, of ways you could reach uh, certain success. So Matt, as an employee yourself at PwC and someone consults to enormous organizations, what do you think the trend is? What do you think they're looking for in terms of talent? What are you looking for now in terms of talent? Has that changed? I think it has, Carl. I mean, I remember the the most prized positions at the uh, sort of hardest to get into management consulting firms um, when I was first entering the workforce. What they were famous for was actually not caring what you studied. Um, you know, the newest recruits into the Boston Consulting Group in my year of admission was someone who'd just done her um, postgraduate in bioinformatics um, and someone else who'd done their master's in theology. Now, they obviously weren't going to be doing high-end management consulting in theology. It was more the point that that person had topped that year mm. and topped that subject. So they were looking for the best of the best, mm. um, regardless of the content that was studied. Mm. Um What's changed since then um, is that I'm looking for someone who can demonstrate practically that they're able to solve and understand a problem. Um, and that experience may have come through a job which they've taken on the weekends or something which they, under their own steam, went out and learnt and practised or demonstrated in a gamified um, data science competition. It might have nothing to do with their formal education. So I think there are other ways that you can prove to a prospective employer that you have practical skills of value, um, whatever whatever industry that employer's in, rather than simply um, you know the, the qualifications that you have under your belt. So, man, I don't think you're alone on, on that thinking. I just don't know how well communicated that thinking is. We're seeing that for our own consulting practice universally, that the best performing companies and organizations are those that have a, a, a culture of learning or a culture of curiosity and exploration. And so I think it's really important and also a, almost a duty of care to share that information with younger people and students to prepare them to know that it isn't just a, a situation where they go about acquiring a body of knowledge. It's a, it's a situation where you acquire a particular process and a, a practice to investigate, to you know, interrogate and investigate as you move through your career. And Carl, I think that continued development and increasing of your value as, a, as an individual in the workforce is part of the employee value proposition. Um, we might not necessarily pay the highest salaries at a given grade, but we will add to the mix, not just things like global travel through an international consulting firm, um, but a learning platform where you can take, um, and in fact are encouraged to take continual courses for your own development. So that, that learning on the job, informal learning, formal learning um, is, is very much a part of the proposition for the sort of employees that are attracted to this sort of place. Mm. And Matt, just to finish with, is there anything that's, that's really profound that stands out to you at the moment when it comes to higher education? Uh, I think it's become a little meta, if you like, Carl. One of the things that is actually going to stand you in the best stead is knowing how to find the right information, um, knowing the best place to go to look something up, organising your own information um, in a way that's that's searchable, that makes sense for you. So the meta information and the ability to traverse that allows you to very quickly um, move between formal bodies of knowledge um, because you understand how to search and that's a common skill. 
Yeah, that's very interesting, Matt. I'm sure we can all all appreciate that and probably reflect that none of us do that particularly well. And if that's you know a position that leads you to better outcomes, it's um certainly a lot of opportunity there. Matt, thanks for your time today. I can see you're, you're an enormous asset for for Deacon, and certainly we're very uh, lucky and privileged to have you on the um, on the podcast. Thank you for your time, Carl. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as always. So that was Matt. Look, talking to Matt for me, he's actually my oldest friend. So I have uh, very little trouble exploring all sorts of topics with Matt. And he's got a wonderful sort of balance between his academic uh, rigor and his ability to think very, very deeply and in a multifaceted way with being a really great human. So I take what he has to say quite seriously. Did you say oldest friend or only friend? I think uh, the line went a bit wobbly there. Look, it could be one and the same. Uh, what, what did you make of it? I actually thought it was fascinating, Carl. I mean, it, it's a perfect personal illustration in some ways of how the landscape has changed. I mean, him describing the fields when, when he was contemplating university those 30-plus years ago as being the group of eight and a, and a, and a number of TAFE-like institutions, I'm, I'm sure there's a few of our audience will have um, peaked at that thought, especially if they've come from some of those places. But he went on to talk about it as being a much more diverse field now and a lot more choice um, and some real innovators and disruptors in our universities out there. It was a very good personal reflection of how the field of education in Australia and globally has changed. Mm. His own behaviour has always been well ahead of the curve. So just a little bit of background. When we were teenagers, you know, we'd have sleepovers and, and have some, you know, camp, do some camping and things like that. He had rigged up a lighting system in his house in the 80s, you know, well before Google Home or anything like that, where he could press a button that would turn lights on in other rooms. So he's essentially the closest thing to a genius that I've ever sort of come in contact with, he's, he's, particularly because I think he ducks to our school in maths and English uh, and had this sort of both creative and also analytical mind working together. So him building computers and electrical systems through his family house while he was riding a unicycle through Camberwell in Melbourne, uh, and very fascinating character and very much one of a kind. But you can see that he's at the forefront of learning. He is he's, he epitomizes lifelong learning and the interest in acquisition of knowledge. So he was doing that through building, learning about building computers, building computers, and then teaching other people to build computers, which has led to where he is now. Um, and that is the rest of the world has somewhat caught up with that. So when we were in a sort of a dormant position or a, a um, in playing receiver of information, going to university, going to lectures, doing hours. He was the step ahead in how else can I learn? Are there other ways to hack the system? And now the system has been hacked. So the technology companies play those roles and start feeding information through micro-credentials, mini courses, Fiverr Learn, LinkedIn Learn, whatever it might be. So um, no doubt he's also one step ahead of that. Well, he very much um, came through with some personal reflections on how those things have changed in, in his own career by the description of what he's been through. So someone that starts off as a ducks in, in maths at his um, Melbourne private school going on to actuarial studies is a very traditional way of, of such a high achiever starting off. So how ironic that he should now be one of Australia's leading data scientists because it's probably an area of the greatest dynamism and diversity and new new innovation that's happening in um, in the modern economy. So that, that his journey has been one of innovating and embracing new things in the way that you're describing. 
Mm. And he is as well as whilst he is academically strong, he's very much interested in practical change. So I know at PwC, he was part of a task force looking at uh, workplace health and safety and um, mental health. Uh, and so he'd organized a, an algorithm or a, a process of identifying uh, how long people were at work with the propensity for them to be struggling from in mental health. So it's he doesn't do it for the sake of it. He does it really for uh, for a cause. And I think that's what we we see that coming through so loud and strong throughout every um, client that we have at the moment. We have Google saying things like "do things that matter." Um, it almost gets back to the Buddhist term of let's start with doing no harm instead of going so far off the track um, that we get stuck sort of in circles of making money for for um, shareholders. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can see that sort of spirit of inquiry and that spirit of, of doing well and doing good for people whilst also learning in much of his story. And look, um, I couldn't help be taken by his his depiction of the emergence of lifelong learning and how that combination of... I, could, I can see how he would have been a brilliant student, but he's been a, bit, a brilliant gainer of experiences, it seems. And it seems to me that his reflection of how the modern... The modern um, workforce and the modern professional is is requiring both that combination of, of, of fantastic early knowledge acquisition, but also the ability to know where to find other things. I mean, I, I don't know what your social media feed's looking like at the moment, but I can barely switch on any platform without seeing some Australian university offer me a master's in data science at the moment. Yeah. Um, maybe that's some of the demographics of what I've got going on in my interactions with the algorithms. But here's someone that that he he, he describes how the Australia's leading public servants and 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 highest paid CEO is someone that's got that job without a degree. Mm. Um, the the formality of educational needs for something as dynamic for data science is something that Australian universities are trying to grapple with. But I think his message to us is not just about doing the Deakin course in data science that he might teach into, but to learn and to embark upon a, a, a journey of experience acquisition and, and learning in, in through work on real-world problems, as he describes them, that he's also had the benefit of. And, and for universities to, to fully deliver on that, they're going to have to find a way to communicate their value proposition and their brand very differently and also indicate that they are changing direction, that it's not a linear process anymore, that they do have a, a much more integrated, whether that be with industry or micro-credentials or whatever offering they have. It's, a, it's an opportunity. Every brand in the industry now has to be disruptive in their communication. So just to change the flow so that we're – because we've been, we've been conditioned into particular patterns from the sector and also particularly universities to expect certain things. So disruption, the university that stands up and disrupts the market with their communication is really going to fare well here. Couldn't be a better time for you to mention that or, or a better time for us to have um, Matt on our, on our podcast platform, Carl, because here we are at this stage of year. I, I, I feel pretty sure that in most chancelleries of most Australian universities right now, the final OKs are being given to the retail campaigns, to the to the brand positioning campaigns, to the marketing communications that 39 Australian universities are about to um, unveil and launch on their multiple audiences. I mean, this was the other thing that was so good about Matt. He's a consultant and a leading data scientist who's an adjunct professor, but he's a graduate of Melbourne University and one of its alumni. He's a parent of two kids that are about to contemplate university. He employs graduates. 
these he is the personification of the multiple stakeholder groups and multiple audiences that your depiction of a disrupting communications challenge is also showing the breadth of where those messages need to get through to. And I'll, I'll be fascinated to see how the 2021 campaigns play through, given, the, given, given where we're up to and the complexity of the situation we're now in. And what a segue, because that's one of the things we will be doing on this podcast is reviewing and giving some critique to the campaigns as they go to air. You know, the ultimate critique and the ultimate evaluation of these things are the proverbial bottoms on seats that happen by the time we get to next next February and the commencement of of the 2022 academic year. But um, there's a lot more nuance than outcomes and measures of that beyond our own critiques in mid-year antiques for this year, how the international markets, whether returning to... Um, on campus in Australia in a few years' time and, and between now and then in online formats. The whole micro-credential markets. The, the world of marketing and comms and brand could not have got more complex as quickly as it has in Australia this, this, this last 18 months in any other sector in any other setting. And it's a great opportunity to shine. For, and for less. I mean, organisations or universities are going to need to do this for less because I'm sure That's budgets true. aren't what, what they once were. So... Uh, lucky that in Australia we do have a, a really great um, suite, I should say, or collection of independent agencies. So the I think the universities that are still using the big public um, publicly listed uh, communication holding groups like WPP and IPG, for instance, um, you can't get away with uh, with doing that work without a certain investment. And whereas there's actually some really good because of a variety of things, there's some great independent agencies I've seen some fab- fabulous work coming out of. So it'd be good to have a look at what comes out of universities as we move forward. Well, and, and um, I guess you and I wouldn't be in conversations like this together unless we were firmly of the view that the best answers to these are going to be coming from combinations of expertise in years of working on commercial brands with an understanding of what that means for the higher education sector. Mm. I think it's, well, it's, it's institutions that get the balance of that right that will really come out of the pack. Yeah, I certainly appreciate the fact that all the brand work that I've done over the years go now goes through your industry filter to make sure that it's relevant and hits the mark. So that's a, um, a terrific place to start. And that's all we have time for on this uh, episode of Headex. Thank you, Martin. Thanks, Carl. Great place to finish too. Let's look forward to what comes through.